Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for that. Morning, church. Good to see you all. Good to be together today. We are, uh, for this fall series, uh, walking through our practices as a church and basically asking the question, what does it look like to not just profess our faith in Jesus, but to practice our faith in Jesus as a way of life? And so uh, we have a set of six biblical practices that correspond to the vision that God has given us uh, as a church, which is to join him in the reconciliation of all things. And so we're using the paradigm of knowing, loving, and serving, or head, heart, and hands to try to flesh out what reconciliation looks like in each of these key relationships. So just run, run you through them real quick. Communion is the practice of knowing, loving, and serving God. Formation is the practice of knowing, loving, and serving ourselves as those who are in Christ. Community is knowing, loving, and serving one another within the church. Hospitality is knowing, loving, and serving our neighbors uh, within our city. Justice is knowing, loving, and serving our global neighbors around the world. And Sabbath is knowing, loving, and serving the rest of God's creation of which we are a part. And so these practices are designed not to be religious rituals, but to be redemptive rhythms in our lives that are rich and life-giving and restorative ways of being and doing that turn our hearts both towards God and towards the world that he loves. And so we take this stuff uh, really seriously. Another way of saying it is that we believe that the way of Jesus is the best possible way to live. And he has given us this vision and paradigm for a whole new way to be human. And these six practices are our best attempt at trying to capture the rhythms that he lived by and called his followers to live by. And so that's what we're doing. Uh, This morning, we look at the practice of justice. What does it mean to know, love, and serve the world in the way of Jesus? So we'll start with knowing. What do we need to know when it comes to this conversation about what the Bible teaches about justice. Uh, reading from Psalm 9 this morning begins by depicting God as the king of the universe. The imagery is that he's on his throne and he's ruling over all the nations on the earth. And the psalmist, David, has given us this psalm of praise and thanksgiving, that as God's people, he invites us to sing and give God praise for the kind of king that God is. So what kind of king is God? In verse 7, the Lord reigns forever. He's established his throne for judgment. He rules the world in righteousness and judges the peoples with equity. Now there's two words highlighted for you here that are incredibly important for us to understand what David and the other biblical authors are talking about when they talk about the kind of king that God is over the world. So the first word that's translated as judgment is the Hebrew word mishpat, mishpat. And the second word that's translated as righteousness is the Hebrew word sadek. Sadek and Mishpah. I didn't 
take a lot of Hebrew in seminary, but these two words are deeply ingrained into my biblical understanding of who God is and what he's called us to. Sadek and Mishpat. We're going to focus on the idea of Mishpat um, for most of this morning. Mishpat here in Psalm 9 translated as judgment, but it's also at other times translated as righteousness or law, but most often it shows up in our English Bibles as the word justice. Mishpat is the biblical word for justice. And this word mishpat shows up over 200 times in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And just like many biblical words and our words as well, there's a whole range of meanings um, to the idea of mishpat. And so we'll start at the most basic level. Here's what we need to know about what the Bible teaches about justice. At its most basic level, mishpat has to do with treating people equitably. So Leviticus 24, for example, uses this word. You are to have the same law or mishpat for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. So interesting. Here's what God is saying here. Mishpat translated law or rule of law. He's saying to do mishpat or to do justice is to be indiscriminate when it comes to administering the rule of law. He's saying regardless of race or class or social standing, anyone who does the same wrong or commits the same crime or whatever should be given the same penalty. There shouldn't be advantages for some people because of their race or their class or anything else. And so that's the first layer of meaning. But Mishpat actually has a whole lot more to teach us than just the punishment of wrongdoing. Doing mishpat also means giving people what they are due, whether that has to do with consequences for wrongdoing or it has to do with the protection and care that every single human being is due as an image bearer of God. So oftentimes we think about the word of justice in the context of our modern criminal justice system which means I hope the bad guys get punished for the bad things that they've done. There is a sense in which the Bible gives us a vision for that, but it's not just bad guys getting what they deserve, but it's image bearers of God getting what they deserve, which is rights, which is dignity, which is care and protection and to be treated equitably. And so in Deuteronomy 18, for example, God's people, the Israelites, are given um, an instruction that they are to bring a certain percentage of their income when they worship in the tabernacle, and that percentage will go towards the priests. These guys who have given their lives to serving God and serving his people and creating space for them to come and worship. Now, what's interesting is that the way Deuteronomy talks about that tithe isn't as an act of duty or obligation or charity, but it's literally called the priest's mishpat, the priest's justice. Because of what the priest is doing with his life in serving God and the people, then it is just for the community to come around and to support that priest. So tithing was originally an act of of justice, giving what is due. But if you really pay attention, it's not primarily priests or anybody like that that are to be the recipients 
of the work of justice. If you look at all the places in the scriptures that mishpat shows up, there are several types of people who show up repeatedly. And Eric did a wonderful job of interceding for these people in his prayer. These four types of people that show up over and over again, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. It's what philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff calls the quartet of the vulnerable. These four groups of people are those that God says are especially deserving of the protection and care of their community. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Zechariah 7 is one place where they're all mentioned in the same text. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true mishpat. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. These were four groups of people in that time and place that had very little economic or social power. These were the people that were disadvantaged by the system. These were people that they weren't going to make it unless the community gathered around them to protect them and to care for their needs. And so I think in our modern day and in our modern place, we still have this quartet of the vulnerable. And we still want to be people who are caring for widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. But the idea is that it also extends to all those who are on the underside of economic and social power. For us in Bend, it would be the homeless. It would be migrant workers. It would be refugees, single parents, the chronically sick, the elderly, and the list goes on and on. For many of us, this is a hard idea to wrap our minds around, but if you pay attention to what the Bible actually says, it is undeniable that the God of the Bible has a special place in his heart for the disadvantaged, for the outcast, for the overlooked. Tim Keller sums it up like this. The mishpat or justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice or mishpat. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. This is what it means to do justice. This is not a new or progressive or liberal take on what the Bible teaches. This has been central to the revelation of the scriptures from long, long before any of us were around, our country was around, or anything that we recognize central to God's vision for his people is that we are people who are pursuing justice. Now, I understand... Uh, Believe me, I understand how dangerous and awkward and confusing and divisive these kinds of conversations can be. I understand that there's phrases like equity 
and justice that have been hijacked and used in such a way that when we hear those words, especially as American evangelical Christians, all sorts of red flags shoot up for us. And what I'm trying to say to you is don't take your cultural, modern, sociopolitical understanding of justice and assume that that's what the Bible's talking about. We go the other way. We start with what God reveals in Scripture. We start with his definitions, with his terms, and with his kingdom, and then we navigate the world outward from there. And so when it comes to something like this, there obviously are so many misunderstandings, misinterpretations, misappropriations of some of these concepts, so much so that in our moment today, there are schools that are banning the words social justice and equity from their curriculum because they're so afraid of what that represents. And then on the other side, you have people that turn every single person into a victim of oppression and every single issue into a justice issue. And the Bible doesn't do any of that. It starts by saying, here's who God is, here's who humanity is, and here's how he has called his people to live in a unique and distinct way amongst the nations. And so we start with our, we start with the scriptures, not our personal social political understanding of words like this. We start with God and we work our way out. That's what you need to know as we move forward in this conversation. Some of you are trying to say, is he like a CNN guy or a Fox News guy, right? (laughs) Neither. I'm a Bible guy. And that's what I want for you too. So... Here's, so we can know a lot of stuff about justice, and that's great, but obviously that's not what it looks like to embody the life God's called us to. So let's talk at the heart level. Loving, what do we need to care about, or what do we need to value if we're going to be people who do justice, who do mishpah? In the next few verses, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. This is in the prayer book of the Bible. So Psalms like this one, amongst other things, they are revealing something about what matters to God and how God shows up in human history. And so here's what's interesting in the history of our country. If you go back to the 17th and 18th centuries, when African people who were brought here as slaves came across the Christian faith and came across the Christian scriptures, there was a whole bunch of passages like these that when they read that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, that he does not ignore the cry of the afflicted, these African slaves did not take these passages metaphorically. They did not spiritualize them to mean my own personal, uh, internal, spiritual struggle of oppression or affliction. They are hearing the God of the Bible say to them, I am your refuge as an oppressed people. I will not... Ignore your cries. So throughout the Psalms, you have this picture of a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, a God who is faithful to rescue his people 
from slavery. Yes, other forms of slavery, but literally slavery. And it wasn't just the African slaves that realized this. Last year, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. exhibited one of the only three known remaining copies of what's known as the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible is officially entitled Select Parts of the Holy Bible for the Use of Negro Slaves in the British West India Islands. We'll just call it the Slave Bible. It was an edition of the Christian Bible that was made by British missionaries who were seeking to convert African slaves in the Caribbean islands to Christianity. Now, if you want to make a version of the Bible that's pro-slavery, you're going to have to cut some parts out. So which parts do you cut out? Well, obviously, you cut out the entire Exodus story where God literally delivers his people from slavery and bondage. And then, obviously, you cut out passages like Galatians 3.28 where Paul says, there is neither slave nor free for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You also, maybe surprisingly, you cut out the last part of Revelation where we have this picture of the new world that God is making, the new heavens and earth where there is complete justice, where there is complete equity, there's complete harmony, and all tongues and tribes and races and nations live together in a beautiful humanity. In the slave Bible, they said, let's cut that out. We don't want them getting any ideas. But they also cut out the entire book of Psalms, which was surprising to me, to be honest. Why wouldn't you want these poor slaves to be reading the Psalms? Like, aren't the Psalms just about sheep lying by still pastures and that sort of thing? Like, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that if you actually read the Psalms, if you actually pay attention to what the biblical authors are claiming here, you see these recurring themes that if you owned a whole bunch of slaves, you wouldn't want them reading. Psalms is obsessed with the Lord's liberating justice for the oppressed. And because this book, I've told you every week now, the Psalms is the only book of the Bible that's not meant to be read, it's meant to be prayed. It's meant to give us a vocabulary for prayer to inform the way our spirit cries out to the spirit of God. And so because this isn't just a narrative or an epistle or something like that, but it's a book of songs and prayers, it tells us that it's not enough just to think about justice. It's not enough just to like the idea of justice. It's not enough to agree with justice. It offers us this formational set of prayers designed to turn our hearts towards those who God says are most deserving of our care and our protection. There's something that needs to happen within us if we're going to become the kind of people who love what God loves and do what God does. A couple weeks ago, I came across a really interesting article by an Old Testament scholar named Michael Rhodes. And what he did is pulled up the top 25 most popular worship songs in the U.S. And he compared the lyrics of the current top 25 worship songs to the lyrics of the worship songs found in the book of Psalms. 
Here's what he found. I'll read a couple paragraphs because it is fascinating. There's only one mention of the word justice in the top 25. By contrast, just one of the Old Testament's words for justice, mishpat, shows up 65 times in 33 different psalms. When you ask what the Psalter says we should be praising God for, the Lord's justice stands at the top of the list. The Psalms shout for joy to the mighty king, lover of justice, who has established equity and enacted justice in righteousness, from Psalm 99. Next observation he makes. There are zero references to the poor in our top 25. But Psalms uses varied languages, language to describe the poor on nearly every page. Psalm 146 declares that the Lord deserves praise because he is the one who executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Next observation. The widow, refugee, and oppressed are completely absent from the top 25. By contrast, these victims of injustice are everywhere in the Psalms. He also notes that you do get one mention of orphan in the top 25, but it's spiritualized, not a literal orphan, as opposed to the Psalms. Next observation, references to enemies are rare in the top 25. When they, are, when they are mentioned, they appear to be enemies only in a spiritual sense. By contrast, the psalmists constantly pray to God about the way the wicked prosper by exploiting or betraying their neighbors. And finally, maybe most devastatingly, in the top 25, not a single question is ever posed to God. When we sing the top 25, we don't ask God anything. And by contrast, prick the Psalter and it bleeds with the cries of the oppressed, pleading for God to act. For example, in Psalm 10, 1 and 2, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. He concludes, protesting too and even raging, about God, raging at God about injustice is central to the hymnal God himself gives his people. The book of Psalms recognizes that suppressing feelings of anger and rage in situations of extreme violence does more harm than good. Humans need spaces to process the full range of our emotions, especially when we or our loved ones have been victimized. For the Psalter, worship is that safe place. But such language is completely lacking in the top 25. So fascinating. And to me, I'm going, no wonder there is such a huge disconnect between so many, especially modern white American evangelicals, and this idea of the justice of God. Because when we gather together week after week to be formed into the image of Jesus, the words that are forming our hearts and the affection of our hearts and our understanding of God and the gospel are so far from the words that God himself gave us to be formed by. So I'm not surprised that there's a disconnect here. In fact, I recently got an email. Every time I talk like this, there will be emails. <laughs> And the email said, we just wanted to explain to you why Antioch's not the church for us. And it says, 
that we've come to recognize that we can't reconcile our theological beliefs with Antioch's high preference for social change and justice. And I replied and said, I so appreciate what you wrote because it helps me understand this disconnect. I said, your explanation actually helps me better understand the disconnect that you and so many others have experienced at Antioch. Meaning, for us, justice isn't a preference, it's a necessity. So anyone would say, I'm not looking for a church that's like so into justice. Like some churches are into these things, some churches are into these things. Um, For us, we're going, that is not an optional preference that we could take or leave. But the way God reveals himself in scripture and ultimately in the person and work of Jesus To take justice out of the conversation would be just as ridiculous as taking God's holiness or God's faithfulness or God's love out of the conversation. Saying, I'm not looking for a church that's so focused on God's love and a God who calls us to love and all that. If that's your preference, that's fine, but that's the exact same way I hear those words. And it's tragic to me. I've heard variations of this quite a few times over the past couple years. We don't share Antioch's vision for justice. And my heart breaks, and I get it. I understand where that comes from. Again, it has to do with the hijacking of these terms. But if you actually read the Bible, you come to see that justice is central to the character of God, central to God's mission in the world, central to the life and teachings of Jesus, central to the vocation of the church, and central to our vision of the new world that God is making. You cannot separate justice from God, the God of the Bible at least. If you do, you're worshiping an imaginary God, a God who's never existed. If your God only cares about personal piety and personal salvation, but doesn't care about justice and equity in the world, also known as social justice, then you are not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a figment of your imagination. That God has never existed in the scriptures. To love God is to love justice. I gotta go. Finally. (laughs) Knowing, loving, serving. What does it look like to love, uh, to do justice? What does it look like to do justice? Not just to know about it, not just to care about it, but to actually live it out in real life. I'm gonna give us three kind of junk drawer bullet points. Uh, The first is remember the poor. Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes to this early community of Christ followers and says, all they asked is that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Paul says remembering the poor is central to what it means to be the church. Now, remembering doesn't sound like a very aggressive verb, right? Like I need to remember my keys or remember to pick up butter or something like that. The word Paul uses here for remember is the same word Jesus uses when he offers his body and blood in the Last Supper and says, do this in remembrance of me. 
that kind of remembering. Like, don't you dare forget who I am and what I'm giving to you. Don't you dare come to this table in vain. Don't you dare take my body and my blood and forget what it cost. So when Paul says, remember the poor, it's not like, oh yeah, I'm gonna add that to my checklist. He's saying the very life of the church should be consumed by an awareness and an inclusion and an active pursuit of justice for the poor amongst us within our city and around the world. Do not gather here to worship the God of justice, ignorant of the pain, brokenness, and oppression of our neighbors around the world. Remember the poor. Real quick, there's this other place where Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you, so you can focus on something else. Do you hear what he said? The poor you will always have with you. Not just there will always be poor people. Jesus assumes that if his followers are living in his way, that the poor will be with them, among them, part of them, cared for within that community. You will always have the poor with you. So it shouldn't be that hard to remember them. Number two, inconvenience yourself or disadvantage yourself would be another way of saying it. Um, we live in an era of slacktivism. I can like a post. I can forward an email. I can post a picture on Instagram and feel like I did my part when it comes to raising awareness for some social issue or something like that. And it costs us absolutely nothing. The biblical vision of doing justice has to do with disadvantaging and inconveniencing yourself in a way that actually costs you something. My theology prof, Gary Brashear, says it like this. Doing justice is inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the worthless person, especially the widow, orphan, immigrant, and poor. Injustice is keeping my stuff for my own comfort. So justice looks like disadvantaging myself in whatever ways, obviously economically, obviously my time, my energy, my possessions, my stuff, my resources, my expertise, my body, and saying this isn't for me but this, all that I have and all that I am has been given to me by God, entrusted to me by God for the sake of administering justice, seeking equity, and advantaging those who are disadvantaged because of the world. So when it comes to doing justice, I hope we're gonna be a community that does a lot more than slacktivism but we are going to give of ourselves, disadvantage ourselves, inconvenience ourselves to the point where it hurts and maybe even feels like death. Finally, remember the poor, disadvantage yourself, look at Jesus. We're not the heroes of this story. I wanna make sure that that's really clear. 
we, as the church, as part of the church, we are not the hope of the world. We are not the savior of the nations. We are not Superman of society. We are not the ones that have the answers. But we point to the one who does. In verse 16, the psalmist writes, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. Another way of saying this is that the Lord is revealed through doing justice. The main picture of justice in the Bible is not something that we are supposed to go and do. The main picture of justice in the Bible is something that we have received because God does justice. That we worship a God of justice, we are saved by a God of justice. You start to see how on the cross, Jesus disadvantages himself in the most epic and extreme and permanent way. And yes, maybe we could think about a criminal punishment, criminal justice element to what's happening on the cross, but the main picture that's given to us is that Jesus lays down his life so that those who have nothing are to be able to become like him. He who was rich became poor for our sake so that we who are poor may become rich like him. The cross is the ultimate symbol of justice and equity. So if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, then it starts with us understanding ourselves as the recipients of justice. And if he has treated us this way, then how could we not navigate the world as those called to him and sent by him to do justice, to give ourselves away for the world that God loves? Pastor Amy is going to come and lead us to the table.